And if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 28 this morning. Acts chapter 28. So I, I filled up my car on Friday. I uh, was going to a wedding, one of my former students. So I went and uh, went and filled up the car. And uh, I almost had a heart attack uh, when I saw how much it costs to, uh, to fill up my car. Anybody else have that experience this week? Right, go to fill up your car. And uh, you see what the total is at the end. Ah! Right? I mean, it kind of freaks you out when you look at it. Um, man, I... We're realizing that our dollars don't stretch as far as they used to. And uh, the cost of items at the grocery store continues to rise. And that can be really discouraging in the, in the daily grind of, of life. And in the midst of these circumstances, in the scope of the financial and personal challenges that, that face each of us on a daily basis, it's easy for us to ask the question, does God provide? But then I was actually thinking about that later. After I wrote that, I was thinking about that statement. And I thought, well, Scripture explicitly teaches that God does provide. So maybe the question that most of us answer, or most of us ask isn't, does God provide? But rather, how in the world is, gonna, is God going to provide? So it's not, does God, but rather, how will God provide? And when we look at the current situation, right, that's facing many of us, I think that it's a fair question to ask. So we don't doubt that God will do what he says he will do, but rather we go through our day with nagging doubts in the back of our brain. And we wonder, can God actually do what he says that he will do? And I think what our text today teaches us is that God does faithfully provide for his people. And it also shares with us the responsibility that you and I have as God's people to faithfully obey the mission that God has given to us. So go ahead and look with me, Acts chapter 28. Just want to read the first 16 verses. The text says this, and, and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita or Malta. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled the fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth him not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul answered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. And from thence, we fetched a compass and came to Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Petoli where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. 
And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as the Apophorum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. I'm not going to lie to you. If you gave me my choice of any text in the Bible to pick, and you said, James, I want you to go and I want you to pick any text to preach from Scripture, this would not be my first choice. All right, this is a, this is a travel narrative, okay? And Luke is moving very quickly after the shipwreck to get Paul to Rome. And as we're walking through the book of Acts, Pastor Will assigned me this text to preach. I need to thank him for that because he always seems to give me the transitional travel narratives, all right? And so he gave me this text to preach. And as I was studying it and I was reading it and, and researching, and the Lord just really impressed on my heart and the Lord just really challenged me with the fact that God faithfully provides for his people. But before we go ahead and get into the text this morning, let's ask the Lord to help us as we jump into the word today. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and study. It's always an honor to be able to open your word, to preach it, to proclaim it. And I just pray that you would help me this morning. Give me the grace to say what I should. Give me the wisdom not to say what I shouldn't. And uh, I just pray that you would help me and, and just clearly lead me and guide me and uh, just help me this morning. I need it. I need it. And Father, I pray that you would use these simple, simple thoughts this morning, right? No, no really deep theology here. And yet, if we can get a hold of this principle and really drive it home into our hearts, I believe that it profoundly impacts the way that we live today. And so I pray that you would help us open our minds, open our hearts. I pray that you would bind any distractions. Help us to take this time to focus and to be centered around your word. We want you to be glorified and magnified. We want the name of Jesus to be lifted up. And so I pray that you would help us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. First thing I want you to notice out of this text is that God will faithfully provide for his people. And God will faithfully provide for his people. And I see two ways, right? That's the question we asked at the beginning. How does God provide? I see two ways that God provides for Paul in this text. And the first way that God provides for Paul is through miraculous actions. Yeah, God provides for Paul through miraculous actions. There's really two miracles that occur in these 16 verses. And the first one happens in verses 3 through 6. God's divine protection is with Paul in verses 3 through 6. This is the account of the snake. Hey, now, this to me are three of the most exciting verses in Scripture. And the reason is... I don't do snakes. I don't do snakes at all. In fact, if you were to ask the kids in our youth group and you were to say, hey, what are three things that James hates more than anything else in the entire world? They would probably tell you in some order, losing, referees, those two things normally go together, right? And then the third one is snakes. I don't, I don't do snakes. I hate them. And the reason is I had a bad experience as a kid. I told my mom I was going to tell this story. We were talking on the phone this week and she told me not to embellish it too much. So I'll give you the light version, right? So, but when I was a kid, I was about seven years old, and we were at the Shedd Aquarium in, in Chicago. And uh, so we were there, and I remember I was a young kid, young and dumb, didn't know any better. And I'm walking around, and this guy is holding, there was like a, a, they were doing some kind of a reptile demonstration. And so this guy is holding a snake, and he says, hey, you can come and you can pet the snake. And me, being a seven-year-old idiot, decided that that was a good idea to do. So I go over there and I start petting this snake. Well, my mom said, 
hey, is it okay if I take a picture of my son petting the snake? And the guy said, sure. Well, my mom pulls out her camera, and she and I disagree on how this part of the story played out. She said that the guy told her it was okay to take a flash picture. I don't know if she knew that the flash on her camera was on. Either way, my mom takes a picture, and the flash goes off as I'm petting this snake. And the way that I remember it as a seven-year-old, now this may or may not be true, but that snake reared back, and it's, I do remember its hood came out. And in my recollection, that snake had fangs the size of samurai swords, okay? And so I'm sitting there petting the snake, and this flash goes off, and that thing rears back, and the guy flips a hood over the head of that snake really quickly, right, and says, I think we'll put this away for now. And then I'm just kind of standing there in shock, not knowing what just happened, right? And so I had nightmares for months after that. So I don't do snakes. In fact, in December, we were at the Creation Museum, and they had another reptile guy that was there. And my mom and my sister and my niece all went and held snakes, and they were like, James, do you want to come? Mm-mm. Hey, there's a snake in the room. I am not going to be there. Okay, I'm not going to be there. And so Paul, Paul has a snake encounter in this text. All right, and look at what happens. Okay, Paul comes, and, and the 276 men from Acts 27 come up, and they float up on the beach. And it's cold, and it's raining. And so what does Paul do? Paul starts gathering wood to make a fire to care for and minister to the needs of the men who were there. And as Paul is building the fire, snakes are cold-blooded creatures, right? If it's cold and if it's raining, the snake is probably stiff. It's hiding. It might have crawled inside a hollow piece of wood. But anyway, Paul's gathering this, and as they get a fire going, the heat from that fire revives the snake, and it wakes up. And Paul's the closest thing to it, and it comes out, and it bites Paul, and it latches himself on the Apostle Paul. Terrifying. All right, so he comes out and, and does that. Now, there's a little bit of debate over this story. And the reason is, if you were to go Google today, there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta. Okay, so the question then becomes, how do we know that this snake is venomous? Okay, well... Malta's been heavily populated throughout the centuries, okay, so it's possible that there was poisonous snakes there in the first century that weren't there today. But the three reasons, I think, from the text that we can definitively say that this snake was venomous and was trying to kill Paul was because, first of all, God said it. Look at verse 3. Yeah, he says, he laid them on the fire. There came a viper. That word is normally used to depict a poisonous snake. Okay, so God, God says it. Also, Luke is a doctor, right, by trade. I think Luke would recognize a dangerous snake bite when he saw one. But really, what should govern our reading and the understanding of this text is the response of the, of the natives here in verse 6. How did the natives interpret this event happening? They said, hey, Paul should be swelling up and dropping down dead. Okay, so how do we know that this snake was venomous? Because everybody there expected Paul to die. Okay. So Paul comes out and he's bitten by this poisonous snake and there are snakes in that region that can immediately swallow a person up and kill them within about five minutes. Okay, and so this happens to Paul. This snake comes out and bites him and everybody around is standing around waiting for him to drop dead. I think it's really interesting when you look at verse, uh, when you look at verse four, the initial, the initial response after Paul gets bitten, everybody kind of backs up a little bit and the natives, they start whispering, right? Because they're like, whew, man, this guy survived a shipwreck, but look at this, right? Clearly, they assume he's a murderer, right? And when it says, uh, it says, no doubt this man is a murderer. He escaped the sea, yet vengeance. That word there in the Greek actually denotes, it's the Greek goddess of justice here. So they're saying, man, Paul escaped the sea, but the gods caught up with him, 
right? They're trying to kill him. Man, they're not going to let him get out of the sea. They're going to take his life, irregardless. But God, in his grace, spares Paul. Paul simply shakes in one of the most exciting verses in all the scripture, verse 5. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Right, So Paul takes this, the snake is lashed onto his hand, and Paul simply holds his arm over the fire, shakes off the snake, it falls in with a snap and crackle and pop, Right, and then Paul stands around and he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. God in his grace spares Paul here. And then look at how radically the perception of the native changes here at the end of verse 6. So they, they wait for him to swell up and die, but he doesn't. After they had looked on a great while, I don't know how long that is. Okay, maybe 30 minutes? Maybe an hour, but can you imagine? Like they're all standing back and kind of whispering like, clearly this guy did something, right? I mean, obviously God's caught up with him. He's going to die. And as Paul just stands there, probably gathers more wood for the fire, right? Ministering to the needs of people. Can you imagine how their whispers change? And all of a sudden somebody comes up to him and taps him and goes, how are you feeling? It's like, man, I'm good. I'm feeling great, you know? And like, can you just imagine how this whole thing would have changed? I mean, this is a complete 180 that's happening on the beach. One point, they think this guy's a murderer. And then the next verse, they think he's a god. I mean, insane. And we understand that this is only done through the miraculous power and provision of God. This is a miracle. God saves Paul's life in an incredibly unique way. So whether in a storm at sea in chapter 27 or whether a snake on land in chapter 28, God was faithful in providing deliverance for Paul. This is miraculous provision. But not only did God provide divine protection, I think that God's divine power was also at work through Paul in this narrative. Look down in verse 7. Paul comes and he stays with the chief Roman official on the island here, Publius. And in verse 8, this guy's father was sick. So this man has welcomed Paul into his home, and Paul is, is treated courteously there, and he looks, and this man's father has an illness. It's possible that this was some kind of a, a fever caused by a microbe or bacteria in the raw goat's milk that was being consumed at the time. In fact, this condition was so common that at one time it was actually called Malta fever. So it's possible that this man is suffering from this illness and Paul comes in, had similar, similar form to like a dysentery, right? There's bloody discharge that comes with that. And so this man comes and he's laying there sick and Paul is welcomed into the home and he's looking at this individual and Paul comes in and look at what he does. At the end of verse eight, Paul enters in, he prays, he lays his hands on him and he heals him. This is the only time in the book of Acts that prayer and the laying on of hands accompany a healing in the entire book. And Paul comes in and he prays for God to give him a unique power. And Paul lays his hands on this individual. And as Paul prays, God's divine power works in and through Paul to heal this man. And here I think we see that God is providing miraculous power to Paul to heal a man, to gain an opportunity to advance the mission of the gospel. So when we talk about provision, we look at the fact God miraculously provided for Paul on the island of Malta, right? God protected Paul from the snake bite. God's power was working for Paul and in Paul and through Paul. But let me ask you, how many of you guys have needed a miraculous recovery from a snake bite this week, right? How many of you guys needed some kind of a, needed some kind of a miraculous intervention? How many of you saw a miraculous intervention? Okay, well... We look at this and say, well, we get excited about these things, right? Like, this is cool. 
The fact that God saved Paul in this way, the fact that Paul was able to pray and lay hands on this man and heal him, that's awesome, and we get excited about that. But the question then becomes, how does this impact our day-to-day? Well, I'm excited to tell you that while God provided for Paul through miraculous methods, God also provided for Paul in the mundane. God provided for Paul through mundane methods as well as through the miraculous. And I think that we see this all the way through the text. Notice that God provided for Paul's physical needs. God provided for Paul's physical needs. Look at verse 2. The barbarous people showed us no little kindness. They kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. Can you imagine what the natives on the island must have thought when they saw these 276 shipwrecked sailors, okay, some Roman, some prisoners, rolling up on their beaches in the middle of the night in this storm? Like, what would their thought process have been? Okay, would you have been incredibly trusting at that moment? I probably wouldn't have been very, right, very trusting, right, especially when you see that guys, some of these guys are rolling in with shackles on. And yet these individuals come in and they show this group incredible kindness and they get fires going and they erect shelters to help protect these individuals out of the cold. What is that? That's God providing physical safety out of the storm. That's God providing in the mundane. That's God meeting the needs of his people. But not only that, God provided safety from the elements. God also provided security for Paul and his team through a friendship with the Roman governor on the island. Look at verse 7. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days and courteously. So it could have been that Paul's survival of the snake bite attracted the attention of the Roman governor on the island, right? I'm sure that the buzz from this story spread quickly. And the Roman governor who's there hears about it and he wants to know more about who Paul is and his story. So he welcomes Paul into his home. What does that do? That provides security for Paul and it provides security for his companions. That's God providing for Paul in a unique way. And I would also argue that that relationship with Publius, which was strengthened after Paul healed his father, would have been incredibly beneficial for Paul and his companions as they dwelt for the next three months on the island. This is God providing for Paul. Not only does God provide safety and security, God also provides supplies for the journey. Did you catch that in verse 10? It says, they also, they honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. So Paul and and the 276 men here, they've they've wintered on the island. And remember, they were jettisoning everything off the boat in chapter 27. I mean, they roll up on the beach with nothing. And they're relying on the native people who are there to take care of them and meet their needs. And not only that, but when Paul and his companions get ready to sail away, these individuals give them supplies out of their own winter stores to take care of them and to meet their needs. It's God providing for Paul. But not only that, God also gave Paul a ship to travel on to Rome. Look at verse 11. After three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle. Remember, the ship had completely broken apart. I mean, there was no fixing this thing, right? I mean, some of the debris from the ship is probably what they were using to make a fire on the shore. Okay? I mean, this thing was gone. But what's there wintering on the island waiting for good weather? Another ship. Where was it going? Rome. Did God want Paul to get to Rome? Yeah. 
Did God provide the means for Paul to get there? Yeah, every step of the way, God is providing for Paul and meeting his needs. Now, is there anything miraculous about a grain ship wintering on the island of Malta waiting for good weather to sail to Rome? No, nothing miraculous. Yeah, that ship was just making its regularly scheduled route, but God put Paul in that ship in the same place at the same time for a specific purpose, to help Paul accomplish the plan that he had for him. Not only that, God gave smooth seas on the voyage. Right, this is a pretty big one after, uh, after the events of chapter 27, right? But look at verses 12 and 13. Uh, they, they sail away, they land in Syracuse. They were there for three days, and then they got a compass, they came to Regium, and then the south wind blew, they came to Patoli. Yeah, you say, well, that's just one thing after another after another. Well, the, the 90 miles, it's a 90-mile sail from Malta to Syracuse. It's another 70 miles from Syracuse to Regium, and then it's 210 miles from Regium to Patol. I mean, so Paul's still going another 400 miles by sea here. And would you be a little jumpy after surviving a shipwreck in chapter 27? Would you be praying hard that God provided good, smooth sailing along the way? Absolutely. And what does God do? God uniquely provides. God conquers the weather here. Okay, God is the God over his creation, and God provides Paul a smooth journey by which to get to Rome. It's provision. God's provision for Paul. Not only did God provide for Paul's physical needs, God also provided for, God, for Paul's personal needs. I love the fact that God provided saints along the route. See that? Look at verse 14. They come to Hutoli. This is in the southern boot of, of Italy. And it says, where we found brethren. Paul found Christians there in this Italian outpost. And there they found brethren. They were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so he went toward Rome. Okay, so God is providing for Paul's personal needs. Do you think Paul needed a spiritual encouragement? Okay, do you think Paul needed to spend some time with some fellow believers? Do you think Paul needed some time to rest and recuperate as he prepared to share the gospel in Rome to be a witness as God's ambassador in chains? Absolutely. And God is providing everything that he needs along the way. He meets these saints there, and they invite him to spend a week with them, refreshing him, preparing him for the remainder of the journey. And then look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. And from thence, so they're walking toward Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came and to meet us as far as the Apiforum. So these individuals, I, I think that there's two separate congregations, right? So in the world of the first century, the churches met in homes. They were very small congregations. And I think here, I think there was more than one house church in Rome. And so I think that what you see happening here is two separate congregations are traveling out to meet Paul and to walk with him and to travel with him as he makes his way to the city. And so this first congregation walks as far away as the Apiform. It's about a 40-mile walk. And then another group meets Paul at the three taverns. That's about a 30-mile travel from Rome. And when Paul sees these believers coming to travel with him, to encourage him, to refresh him spiritually, to meet his needs, what happens? He thanked God and took courage. Did Paul need that? Did Paul need the encouragement and the fellowship of other brothers? Did Paul need that spiritual refreshment, knowing that he was still in chains and in bonds and knowing the struggles that he was going to face in Rome? I absolutely think that he did. And what God did here is he provided for Paul's personal needs along the way. He provided for Paul emotionally. He provided for Paul spiritually. He gave Paul exactly what he needed on this journey. 
God provided for Paul miraculously, yes, but God also provided for Paul in the mundane. So then the question becomes, what are, what are the, the lessons for the marketplace, so to speak, for us, right? What are, some, what are some personal applications as we think through God's provision, as we think about the world in which we live today? How do we bring this out of the world of the first century? How do we bring this out of Paul's life as he's journeying to Rome? And how do we bring it into Arise Baptist Church today? When we walk out these doors, how does Acts 28 impact us where we live? Well, first of all, do you believe that God can provide for your needs? Do you believe that God can provide for your needs? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 reminds us, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Can God supply for your needs just like he supplied for the Apostle Paul? Can God can the God of the miraculous in Acts chapter 8 still provide for us in that way? Can God, just as he met Paul's needs in the daily grind of Paul's journey, can he meet our needs in the daily grind of our life today? And the answer to that is an emphatic yes. God can supply and he will supply all of our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So we believe that he can well, then the question that we have to ask is, do, you, do we believe that God can provide for our needs today? Intellectually, we understand that God can provide for and meet our needs. Scripture says it, we believe it. But do we actually live it out by faith? Do we actually believe that God will meet our needs today? Okay, when I go to the grocery store and an avocado, a single avocado costs $2, do I believe that God can meet my needs today? And let me remind you, let me remind you, Psalm chapter 50, I pulled just a couple, a couple of verses as an excerpt here. Actually, turn over there, turn to Psalm 50. This is a great text. I think we know it, we know it in our heads. It's good for us to look at it. Uh, let's, start, let's start in verse seven, and then we'll, I'll, I'll read verse seven, and then we'll skip down to verse 10. God is speaking and he says this, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Look at the last phrase. I am God, even thy God. Now scroll down to verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Can God meet your needs today? Yes, because it all belongs to him anyway. And God has promised to supply your needs. And since he's promised to do it, we can act in faith, understanding that he will. Because it all belongs to him. God can meet our needs. And God will meet our needs. And he can do it today. I was even thinking God provides, often we think physically, but God provides in other ways as well. Sometimes you have to have difficult conversations and you don't exactly know how you're going to address those. You don't know how you're going to face those. You don't know what you're going to say. Can I just remind you, James chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What's the provision of God in this text? God provides wisdom to his children. 
I don't know about you, but I need, I need wisdom on a daily basis. I turned 33 this last week. The older that I get, the more I realize that I don't know, right? It's also amazing. The older I get, the smarter my dad gets. It's, it's funny how that works, all right? So, uh, but there's the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know. And, and, and the more I realize that I need to ask God for, for wisdom, right? And what does God promise to do? God is Find it, and to him that knocketh it shall be open. If a son shall ask any bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give, give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? What is Jesus saying in this text? Listen, if you and I, as sinful human beings, know how to give good gifts Oh, you use this one? How's that? All right, cool. All right, so if you and I, as sinful human beings, know how to give good gifts and take care of our families, how much more will our perfect, righteous, loving, holy, heavenly Father take care of his children? God will provide for our needs. Let me give you one more thought here. We're talking through some applications. I would encourage you, the the miraculous provision of God excites us, as it should. And there are times in all of our lives probably where we could look and say, man, God provided in a very special way. And we can rejoice in that. We can be thankful for that. But can I encourage you? Don't miss the mundane provision of God in your everyday life. Don't miss the fact that God is meeting your needs every single day, even in the seemingly insignificant. The majority of our lives are all things ordinary, right? We get up, we go to work, have meetings, come home, vacuum the floor, take care of the dogs. That's my life. I don't know if it's yours, right? But take care of the dogs. Uh, Try to stay in some kind of shape, right? Study, prepare, go to bed, rinse, repeat, and, and do it all over, right? That's, that's the bulk, that's where we live. And yet in the middle of where we live, God meets our needs every single day. And he's promised to do it. We like the miraculous, but let's not miss or underestimate God's daily provision for us. Turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. And let's look, uh, let's look beginning in verse 25. Jesus is teaching, obviously, this famous account, Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in verse 25, Jesus teaches. He says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the, mo- the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? 
Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Oh, by the way, verse 27. I, I struggled with that one for a long time and then I realized that I was stuck at 5'9", and so that it is, it is what it is, right? Some of us are just vertically challenged. All right, unfortunately, if I could take thought and add cubits onto my stature, I would have, but unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. All right, verse 28, it says, And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things did the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know what? God cares about your physical needs. God cares about the routine things of your life, and God has promised to take care of them. And what does he say in verse 33? Jesus says, take care of my things, and I will take care of your things. So let's not, let's not, miss, let's not miss the provision of God in the routine things of our daily life. The old hymn tells us to count your blessings. Right? What a good practice that would be to help us recognize God's provision in the daily grind of our lives. So I would challenge you, when was the last time that you took account and, and really were thankful for God's provision for you? As this song tells us, right? I'm not Pastor Will, so I'm not gonna sing it, right? But when upon life's billows you are tempted and tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it might surprise you what the Lord has done. God is faithful to provide for his people. But not only in this text do we see that God is faithful to provide for his people, we see that God's people must faithfully obey his mission. God's people must faithfully obey his mission. The provision is God's part. Now, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to be faithful to obeying the mission that God has laid out before us. And we see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was focused on meeting the needs of others. Paul was focused on meeting the needs of others. Look at Paul was focused in the midst of demanding circumstances. Okay, if you have your Bible, turn back to Acts chapter 28 and look at verse 2. Okay, the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. They kindled the fire and received us because of the present rain and because of the cold. Listen, Paul and his crew, or, or Paul and the other 276 men, they didn't roll up on a quiet, peaceful beach. They rolled up as this storm was still raging. But if there was anybody that had a right to like take a nap under a palm tree and phone it in, it was the apostle Paul after all the work that he did in chapter 27 to get everybody to the beach in one piece, right? I mean, you look, it's exhausting listening to what Paul did in chapter 27. And yet what does he do here when he gets on the beach in chapter 28? He's walking around, picking up firewood, making fires, making sure the needs of everybody else around him are met. And he gets bit by a snake for his trouble, right? But Paul goes around and he's faithfully ministering to the needs of people. 
Paul sees individuals in a difficult circumstance, and instead of phoning it in and saying, somebody should serve me for a change, right? Paul is actively looking out for the needs of others, and he's faithfully ministering to them. Not only is Paul focused on serving those in demanding circumstances, notice also that he is serving those in infirmed conditions. Look at verse 9. This is an interesting verse. Okay, so in verse 8, Paul heals Publius' father. And now in verse 9, look at what happens. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. Now that word healed in verse 9 is different than the word healed in verse 8. So the word word healed in verse 9 is actually the word that we get our English word therapy from. So I think that it has the idea of medically treating the conditions of another person. So what's going on between verse 8 and verse 9? I think what's happening here is that Paul heals Publius's father in verse 8. That's divine power working through Paul. Other people hear about that, and they come to Paul. And what Paul and Luke, again, what is Luke's calling? What is Luke's occupation? He's a physician, right? I think Paul and Luke are working together to meet the needs, to meet the medical needs of individuals who are coming. Now, could there be some divine healing involved in this? Yes, but I think that there's also just physical treatments that are happening here for individuals who are sick who are coming to Paul and Luke. You say, well, where do you get that conclusion? Well, look at verse 10. Okay, so they came and they were healed. And the individuals who are healed, that's the start of verse 10 there, who? They honored who? They honored us. Who's the us? I think Paul and Luke, right? Paul and Luke are working together to meet the needs of the sick individuals that come to them. And as a result of their faithful ministry in their three months on the island, the natives who are healed and cured because of their infirmities, they come to Paul and Luke and they heap honors on them and they provide provision for them as they sail off to Rome. So Paul isn't sitting around here. Paul is actively meeting the needs of others. He's using the time that God has given him. He's using the resources that God has given him. He's using the companion that God has given him to be an effective servant and to be an effective minister right where God has placed him, even as a prisoner in chains. Paul is faithfully meeting the needs of people. Now, it's interesting If you read through these verses, you probably noticed that one thing was glaringly absent. It's not mentioned in these 16 verses once that Paul preaches the gospel or shares it with anybody. And in fact, look at the end of verse 6. It says, the natives there changed their mind and said that Paul was a god. And then Luke moves on to the next piece of the narrative. And it's kind of an awkward transition, right? You're like, well, why doesn't Luke address this? Why doesn't he say anything about it? I think this is a question that we need to answer, right? Because what has Paul been doing for the last, I don't know, 20 20 chapters in Acts? Preaching the gospel. So why doesn't Luke mention it here? Well, I I don't think it's Luke's focus in the narrative. In, In Luke's purpose in telling this story, Luke isn't intending to highlight Paul's gospel ministry. Luke's intending to show how Paul survived a shipwreck and got to Rome. Okay, so he's moving through this portion of the story very quickly, but... Even though Paul's gospel presentations aren't recorded, I think that this is a platform that God gave to Paul. The miraculous provision that God demonstrated to provide gospel opportunities in the book of Acts. The reason why miracles are done in the book of Acts is always to accompany a presentation of the gospel. 
And based on that truth that we see over and over again through the book of Acts, as well as the personal character of Paul, I mean, you remember back, I think it's in Acts chapter 13, Paul comes to Lystra, right? And, and, and they assume that he's a God and they try to worship him. And what does Paul do? He gets up and he, pre- he corrects them and he preaches the gospel to them. So just because Luke doesn't record it here doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I think we can safely assume based on the character of Paul and the witness that we've seen in the rest of the book of Acts, that Paul took the opportunities that he was given here to share the gospel and to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as he met the physical needs of others. So he's using both of these platforms as an opportunity to be an effective witness of Jesus Christ right where God has placed him, even in Roman chains. And I do do want you to notice that Paul is in chains here. Sometimes we can forget that as we read through this section. Right, because at the beginning of chapter 27, Julius is there, right, Paul's Roman guard, and Paul's in chains in the ship, but after Paul kind of takes charge in chapter 27, gets everybody to the beach safely, we don't really read anything about a Roman guard here in in verses 1 through 15. Like, we don't see it at all, and it can be easy for us to forget that Paul actually is a prisoner, but Luke reminds us at the end of this narrative, look down at verse 16. It says, when we came to Rome, the centurion, bam, there they are. They reappear, right? So did they just disappear for this section? No, they were there the whole time. Okay, don't forget that Paul is doing this as a prisoner. The centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard and Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Paul was God's ambassador in chains. So as we think through this section, as we think through the fact that Paul was faithful to serve and meet the needs of others as we think about the fact that I believe even though the text doesn't explicitly say it, that Paul's gospel witness accompanied the miraculous acts that he did here in this passage. What are the lessons for us today? Let me just give you a couple, a couple of simple thoughts here. Our, our mission, the mission that God has given to us, if we're talking about being faithful to fulfill the mission. Our mission is to go and to make disciples. That's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. That is the mission that God has given to us. But what that mission involves is life-touching life activities. What does it mean to make disciples? It means that you are investing your life in somebody else to help them grow closer to Jesus Christ. And that's more than you sitting here on a Sunday, or that's more than you just telling them what they should do. That is you investing in their life. We need to be faithfully reaching out to others. We need to be meeting people where they are at in an effort to reach them with the gospel. This is James chapter 1 and verse 27, when James reminds us, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James says, what is the mark of a genuine faith? What is the mark of somebody who is genuinely trying to make disciples? There is life-touching life activity here to go and visit and to care for those who are in need. Meeting the needs of others and investing yourself in their life, that's the mark of a person with genuine faith. Turn your Bibles over to the book of James. Turn your Bibles over to the book of James. Let's look at James chapter two together.
And look with me, beginning in verse 14. James tells us this, what does it profit, my brethren, that a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what are the, what, what the profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, is James teaching here? Is James teaching a works-based salvation? No. Right? Paul makes it explicitly clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And then not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So James here is not teaching a work-based salvation, but rather what he's saying is the mark of a true believer, somebody who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, will flesh out, that will be demonstrated in their actions, it'll be demonstrated in the life that they live. So when Paul is on Malta, Paul is preaching the gospel on Malta, but Paul isn't just preaching. What is he doing? He's getting down. He's ministering to sick people. He's helping to, to heal them, right? That therapy work that he's doing there. He's gathering firewood and meeting the needs of individuals who are cold and hungry and half dead on the beach. The gospel had changed Paul's life, and what it did was it affected his actions and the way that he lived. And if you and I are going to make disciples of Jesus Christ, if you and I are going to be faithful to obey the mission that God has given to us, we can't just talk about it. We have to go and we have to live it. That's why our mission statement at Arise Baptist Church says that we exist to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. It's that simple. God has called us to make disciples, but that means we actually have to go and do it. If God is faithfully providing for your needs, and he is because he promised that he would, are you faithfully doing your part to make disciples and to fulfill his mission? If God has provided employment, are you using that platform as a mission field to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Okay, that's God providing in the mundane, right? Sometimes we forget to be thankful for our paycheck. And yet, if God has provided employment for you, Right, But are you using that to faithfully fulfill the mission that God has given to us as believers? Are there individuals around you that need a helping hand? Are you willing to invest and pour your life into the life of others for the purpose of helping them draw closer to Jesus? Are you faithful to obey the mission? I think that this text, I think that Acts chapter 16, I, I, I told you at the beginning, right? No, no deep theology here. But I think that this text is incredibly practical when we think about how it affects our everyday life. I think it's a remarkable presentation of God's provision for his children, as well as our responsibility to walk by simple faith in that provision for the purpose of making disciples. So the big idea, the big thought that I want to leave you with today because God faithfully provides for his people, his people should be faithful in accomplishing his mission. Because God faithfully provides for his people, his people should be faithful in accomplishing his mission. My wife and I moved down to Texas in, in 2014. I'm not a native Texan, but we consider Texas home now. I'm jealous of those people that can put up signs that say, um, 
Texan by the grace of God. Uh, that's, I think that that's kind of cool, right? So my wife and I love Texas. We love being here. So we moved down in 2014. And uh, so I was, working, I was working on staff at a church as an, as an academy principal for a couple years. Um, I, was working on my, I was working on my master's degree at that point. Um, I, probably, I probably didn't have all the skills that I needed to be an academy principal, but the Lord was gracious. And, and Lord really provided, uh, provided some, some important skills and, and personal development that, that I needed over those two years in that period of time. But after those couple years were up, we felt like the Lord was, was leading us uh, away. And so I wasn't 100% sure what we were going to do. Uh, I put out, put out lots of applications uh, into some different ministry positions, had several interviews, and yet we didn't, didn't really have, have peace about anything. And, and my wife and I had really gotten connected into the church here at that point as well. And we loved the congregation. And so I went, went, to, work, uh, went to work at a place, um, went to work a secular job working in a soccer company teaching little kids how to play soccer, which was a ton of fun, and, uh, and enjoyed that. And the Lord really used that time to develop me and provide some, some skills and abilities that I needed. I had the opportunity uh, to develop some, some skills in uh, project management and to develop some skills in, in sales and marketing, things that I, I didn't have before, and I didn't know that I needed them. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was just kind of walking by faith, felt like this is what the Lord wanted us to do for that period of time. And... Uh, just kind of we're working hard at it. At that point, um, Alan and Laura had actually, Alan and Laura called us out of the blue one day. My wife and I were still living over in Katy at that point and said, hey, my brother, my brother planted a church uh, and you should come and check it out. And I'll never forget the first Sunday we came, we pulled in and we thought, are we in the right place? And we pulled in and sure enough, we were. And then we came over to the fellowship hall in, in Ron and Cindy Roach, they, they don't attend here anymore. But Ron and Cindy Roach, uh, we walked into the fellowship hall and there was like, I don't know, Billy, maybe 15, 15 people here at the time. And uh, so we walked in and, and Cindy told me, she grabbed my wife and I and said, hey, we're taking pictures for a photo directory and we would love to take a picture of you guys. Like literally we were like five steps into the building and uh, I was a little shell shocked, didn't know what to say. So she came, snapped our picture. My wife and I still have it somewhere. And uh, I, we, were, we were walking in and I looked at Angie and I went, did we just, did we just join this church? <laughs> She was like, I don't know. And uh, so we just kept coming. We just kept coming after that. And, uh, and it was awesome. And, and the Lord continued to give us opportunities to serve. And, and the Lord continued to help us grow in, in love for the, for the people that were here. And things were going pretty well. And then in, in October of, of 2019, the company that I was at did some restructuring, and I, I lost my job. And uh, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I started putting in some applications, felt like the Lord was us back into full-time ministry at that point. So I had a couple positions that I was looking at back in the Midwest, close to where, close to where I grew up, um, a couple of, of associate pastorates and a couple of senior pastorates, and just didn't, didn't feel peace about any of that. And then Pastor Will took a huge step of faith in December of that year when he asked me if I wanted to join staff part-time. And he was upfront and honest about that. He said, listen, I, I can't pay you as a full-time staff member, but I'd love to bring you on part-time if you and your wife are willing to stay. And Angie and I both felt like that was what the Lord wanted us to do. So we did that. And Lord provided an opportunity for me to be able to coach soccer over at a, over at a large private school in town. So I was doing, doing both. And it was great. And then the Lord continued to provide. And we were able to, to come on staff full time here at the church. And the Lord continued to uh, just give us additional opportunities. And we were excited about that. And then in September of this past year, 
my wife, no fault of her own, circumstances outside of her control, lost her job. And we sat down and looked at that and went, oh, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the Lord has faithfully and graciously provided for her, and the Lord has faithfully and graciously continued to provide and, and meet for our needs, meet our needs. And I look back over the last seven years in my own life with my wife and just walking in a day-to-day, in the daily kind of grind of life. And looking back now, I, I can honestly tell you that God faithfully provides. And it's, it's not always miraculous. I mean, God didn't drop a million-dollar check in my mailbox when I lost my job, although that would have been cool, right? Didn't happen. And yet, God still faithfully provided for our needs. And God met us right where we were at and continued to faithfully take care of us as we tried to faithfully do what we believed that he wanted us to do. So it's not always flashy. And sometimes we struggle with a little bit of doubt. Sometimes when we're balancing the checkbook and we look at what's coming in and we look at what's going out, it causes us to wonder a little bit. And yet, I think based on the truths that we see in this text, we can say that God will faithfully provide for his children. The question is, will you and I be faithful in our obedience to God's mission? May God help us to do it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Simple, very very simple thoughts this morning. And yet, we, we need to be reminded, I needed to be reminded this week, that you faithfully meet our needs. You faithfully take care of us. And sometimes it's miraculous. And we get excited about that. This is awesome. Most of the time, it's just in the mundane routine of life. But Father, help us not to overlook that. Help us to be thankful for it. Help us to count our blessings and help us to continue to move forward. There's faith for us to pour into the lives of somebody else, to invest in them, to care for them, to seek to meet, to seek to meet the needs of others. And yet, this is what you have called us to do. Making disciples is a life-touching life activity. We need your help. We need faith to do it. So I pray that you would work on our behalf. I pray that you would work for us by grace. I pray that you would work in us to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would work through us as we put hands and feet to the Great Commission as we follow the Great Commandment. We'll give you the honor and glory for it because you're the one that deserves it.